So in the big story of things, um, the prophetic uh, voice certainly uh, comes from Abraham and then especially Moses who speaks to Pharaoh and, and says, you know, let my people go. But in terms of uh, uh, prophets to the, the Israelites, that really um, came about with the establishment of the kingdom. When they moved from the time of the judges to the times of the kings, the kings kind of needed someone to kind of call them, um, kind of check them and say, hey, this is not the way that God wants you to go. You know, choose A, not B, move this way, not that. You know, repent, follow God, don't follow false gods. That didn't go so well, of course, um, and the kingdom ended up being divided. The northern kingdom uh, was destroyed. Uh, the southern kingdom, of course, we looked at this last week at Jeremiah, was under the threat of the Babylonians coming. And, of course, the Babylonians came and uh, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, took the king, plucked out his eyes, took him into captivity, kind of left Jeremiah and a handful of others there, we didn't mention this last week, but Jeremiah's story actually doesn't end so well. At the very end of that story, all of his prophecies having come true, they said, well, prophet, man of God, we know now that you speak the truth. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. And he said, okay. And he said, this is what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to stay here in Jerusalem and live under Babylonian rule. And they're like, no, that can't be what God wants us to do. And they... They kidnapped him, and they took him, which is where the story started, right? The story, they were delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they end up kidnapping the prophet and taking him down to Egypt, which is how that part of the story ends, Jeremiah's story. Eventually, of course, the exile would come to an end. Um, the Persians would come and overthrow the Babylonians. Uh, the Persians had a different kind of, of administration, philosophy and allowed the, the, the Jews to leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem. As they get back, so this is kind of after the exile, we end up with Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, who we want to look at today. What's interesting is, uh, you know, sometimes we use a lot of language, and that language over the years, especially over the decades, can pick up a bit of baggage, and it becomes almost unusable for us anymore. Um, uh, several years ago, I, I started to hear people self-identify as Christ followers. Um, somehow the term Christian meant kind of established, organized religion, and it meant something that was either dry or dead, and so they preferred the term Christ follower over Christian. Uh, now it's not unpopular for people to say that they're spiritual, but they're not religious. Um, so whatever that means, sometimes... Uh, verbiage kind of picks up some extra connotations that we're uncomfortable with, and so we move on to new language to kind of identify ourselves. Well, I think that might be going on with the post-exilic prophets. So Haggai is called a prophet, but only in chapter 1. About halfway through chapter 1, he's referred to as a messenger, like the messenger of the Lord, which is certainly part of what the prophets did, but that becomes kind of his, his title. And by the time we get to Zechariah, Zechariah is referred to as the son and grandson of a prophet, but Zechariah himself is never referred to as a prophet. And then Malachi, the, the last of the prophets, his name actually means my messenger. 
so that their, their language was starting to shift from prophet to messenger. I think part of what might be going on there is that part of what it meant to be a prophet was to be not listened to, was to be marginalized, right? The prophets were beaten, some of them were killed, the people of God often resisted what they had to say, and with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, uh, things were changing, right? As, as the great prophet uh, Bob Dylan says they would. Um, the times they are changing. That's my Dylan impersonation. Um, so so what, what's changed? Well, part of what's changed is that the people are actually starting to listen. <laughs> they're starting to pay attention, and they're starting to kind of uh, follow uh, God. So the, 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 the difference between a messenger and a prophet is a messenger, biblically speaking, is a prophet who actually is successful, <laughs> who actually um, persuades the people, or at least the people listen to them. So in the case of Haggai, as he came, and, and Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying at the same time, they overlapped so that they were in Jerusalem uh, speaking um, during the same period. So Haggai looks around and he goes, well, we've made it home, and uh, we're starting to rebuild. Uh, things are getting better, thanks to Ezra and Nehemiah. Got some, got some walls, got some houses. Uh, people, you look like you're getting your life back together. But then there's the temple. And so in chapter 3, Zechariah prophesies, and he's telling them that the, the, the high priest is really not fit for his ministry. Um, his, his clothes are tattered, uh, they're dirty, they need to change them, and he needs to be prepared to kind of do that ministry. So the word of the Lord comes through Zechariah, and he's like, you know, change his clothes, get him ready, get him dressed to, to lead worship in the temple, which is an interesting thing to start to do, right? Can you imagine dressing someone up in their garb uh, when there's no place to do it? I mean, there, there was no temple. It would be like putting a judge in, in a robe without a, a courtroom. So this passage from Zechariah became one of those kind of key messianic verses that people would look to. Um, interesting side story here. Uh, fast forward about 2,000 years, and there's this uh, young man in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, interestingly enough, Desmond Doss, um, who we saw the clip of earlier, was also Seventh-day Adventist, but again, we'll come back to him in a minute. This man's name was Vernon Howe. And, and Vernon was kind of, uh, he was part of a little break-off group from the Seventh-day Adventist. Interesting fellow. He was reading that passage in Zechariah, and he said, well, it doesn't sound to me like there's one Messiah that's coming. It sounds like there's two. You know, the, the two sons of oil, the two olive trees that stand before the Lord of all the earth. That's how that passage comes to an end. One of them seems to be very priestly, kind of establishing the right religion, the right worship of God. The other seems to be more kingly, right? Joshua is Zerubbabel. Um, and so, according to Vern, his interpretation of that was that God was actually promising the Jews two messiahs, and Jesus had been the first. That Jesus was the messiah, like Joshua, who would be priestly and would establish the right worship of God on the earth, but that we could expect a second messiah who would be kingly, not, not a return of the first, but a second one who would establish the right government 
of God. And so Vernon somehow uh, thought to himself, I think that's me. Uh, so Vern, as his friends called him, um, said, uh, I, th- I, think I'm the fr- I think I'm the kingly Messiah. So, of course, King, King Vern doesn't go over so well. And so Vernon changed his first name to David. You know, King David. Now, that sounds right. So uh, King David Howe, uh, unrelated to the David Howe who sometimes graces us here at uh, uh, Oasis, one of our first readers. Anybody know David? Different David Howe. Um, so King David Howe. That didn't quite, quite ring true for Vern either. So he decided to change his last name. And so when he's looking at possible names to take, the king of Persia who had overthrown Babylon and had kind of delivered the, uh, the Jews, his name, when it's Anglicized and pronounced in English, is Cyrus. But the Aramaic version of that is Koresh. And so Vernon Howell changed his name to David Koresh, and he was the leader of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, in the 1990s, and perhaps you know the rest of the story there. So a couple of things to be said here, I think. We can always read Scripture and apply it to our lives in kind of personal ways. Sometimes that leads to great violence and kind of misinterpretation. Uh, Other times that leads to kind of growth and health and and community and and the work of God. Uh, The question then comes for us sometimes is how do we discern between the two? Now, obviously, you might think uh, we we can discern the things that are drastically wrong. Like if somebody tells you you need to come live with them on a farm and if you're a woman, you need to sleep with them and if you're a man, you need to let your wife sleep with them, that, that should cue you in that something's not working, right? Um, or if they want to kind of stockpile a lot of weapons, which is interesting enough because they were in Texas and when ATF went in, they said they had to because there was a stockpile of weapons. I'm not exactly sure what that means in Texas because I imagine there's a lot of... A lot of farms with a lot of stockpile of weapons in Texas, but we'll leave that, we'll leave that for now. But, but for us, how, how do we kind of read Scripture and how do we interpret it? Well, the, the Spirit, I think, will guide us. And our communities will kind of give us some parameters. And it will have to kind of be in the, in the Spirit of, of Christ. So that if it has to do with kind of love and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation, these are the ways of our God, right? Our God, who might be all-powerful, the Lion of Judah, is not the one who kind of comes and conquers through force um, and manipulation. In the book of Revelation, uh, when John hears that... uh, he is told that the, the, the scroll is sealed and he doesn't have access to it. He hears that the line of Judah can open it. But when he turns and looks, what he sees is, is a lamb. A lamb that was slain but is now standing, which is this kind of beautiful metaphor for the resurrection. So we, we sing this song, our, our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. Our God is a lamb the lamb that was slain. And that's, that is our story. And that is our guiding principle. And that is how we must then understand and interpret all these other passages of Scripture, kind of 
through this kind of Christological lens. What's interesting uh, about the Zechariah story is um, and the post-exilic period, I think, is one that is, is, a, is a testimony that we can all kind of relate to. Right? We, we have our hopes and dreams. We have our expectations about how our life is going to unfold. And then life happens, right? Um, things go wrong here or there. Um, someone gets hurt or someone gets diagnosed with a disease or there's an accident or, or um, I don't know, life can just kind of fall apart. And we've, we've all experienced those parts of our lives when they've kind of fallen apart. What I, what I like about the post-exilic prophets is, and, and this kind of goes back to the call of worship, what Brueggemann was talking about, prophetic imagination, is that we need the prophets and we need their imagination. We need those amongst us in our community who can imagine things otherwise. That we don't have to simply um, exist in, in some kind of... Uh, trying to just sustain mode, trying to kind of survival mode. That, that God didn't make us for survival. He didn't make us simply for basic sustenance. Um, Jesus says, I, I came to give you life and life more abundantly, that our lives should be filled with joy. And that joy comes not because we've done great things, but because God has done great things and invited us into his life. And that life with God is a life that, that we have and that we, we can experience with our friends and with our family and with our children. And, and I know that, that times get hard, and sometimes God will call us to things that seem beyond our capacity, things that we couldn't possibly kind of do on our own. But we have to have hope. Um, hope that springs out of this prophetic imagination that this is not how it will always be and that things can become how God intended them to be. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the life of Joshua, who was a priest but had no temple to worship in, and Zerubbabel, who was a governor, but, you know, kind of in, in charge of the people of God, but yet there was no temple. So a temple did get built. Zerubbabel built it, uh, not by might nor by power, by the Spirit, but, but Zerubbabel got it built, and Joshua did minister in it. Um, some of you know a bit of my personal story. Uh, this passage of Scripture is one of those that has had a huge kind of impact on me. And uh, I'd like just to take a few minutes to, for those of you who haven't heard, and if you have heard, if you'll just indulge me a bit, uh, about how that happened. So I was, um, I'd gone to college, right, did a bachelor's degree in, in, in Bible and religion, and I'd gone to seminary and did a master of divinity, and I had this bright idea that we would move to England, uh, Angela, Katie, and me, and, you know, I'd, I'd do a PhD, and um, at the end of my uh, seminary time, Angela came to me, and she said, I'm pregnant, and I'm like, oh, well, I don't guess we'll be going to England, I'll be getting a job, <laughs> Um, because we already had one kid, and, and the plan was that Angela's going to work and kind of support, support me during my studies. So I start to put out my resume in different places, and my dad comes to me, and um, he says that it, through, it's a longer story, but he says, basically, 
God's blessed me financially, and I think that he hasn't done that for me, but so that I can bless others, and especially you, and he and my mom kind of funded our transition to England, uh, where I started my PhD work. So uh, I'm working on the PhD. We moved back to the States. It's a little earlier than, than I wanted. I was kind of frustrated by that. But um, and there was a couple of months there that we weren't quite sure where we were going to live or where I was going to work. We're kind of bouncing from family member to family member. So it wasn't like uh, an experience of homelessness that's severe, like we were sleeping outside or in the car. But we didn't have our own place, and we didn't have our own car. So that's my one reason why we didn't sleep in the car. Didn't have one to sleep in. Um, but, but times were tough. At the end of that summer, um, things kind of, kind of fell, fell together, as they sometimes do for me, it seems like. And uh, we moved uh, from Virginia, where we were living, to Tennessee. And we had you know, jobs and a place to live. And I was going to finish the PhD. That was in 1997. It'll be 20 years ago. Uh, it was a week after we moved. We moved on Memorial Day. It was the Tuesday of the following week. Um, we got a phone call, and my dad had been killed in a car accident and kind of rocked my world. Um, he was a good father. He was a mentor. He, he, he was a friend. Um, he was a major uh, benefactor in my life. And so I, I, I kind of spun out in, in not the healthiest of ways, as we sometimes do. And I would say... Um, Three months after that, between the depression and kind of the emotional trauma, um, if you had asked me, uh, is there a God? And if I was honest with you, I would have said, "Mm, I'm not sure. Um, It was in a dark space. And in the midst of all that, here I am, you know, two degrees in or two and a half degrees in, uh, thinking that I was going to be a, you know, a college professor and all of that was kind of falling apart on me. So the university's, you know, knocking at the door, not literally, metaphorically. And they're, they're wanting some research, you know, it's that time of year. And I didn't have, I didn't have anything. Um, and so I was at risk of suspension academically. So uh, there was a seminar coming up that was local, and I was going to present a paper there. And a, f- a friend of mine, a guy I know, his name's Larry McQueen, um, Larry was going to be there, and I always respected Larry and thought, well, you know, he has insights I don't have. He understands things that I don't understand. Uh, when I get there, I'll present this research. Larry will have insight that no one else will have seen, and then I'll take that and write it in my paper and send it into the university. Now, that is, that is plagiarism. That is wrong. I was in a tight spot, and I didn't know if God existed. <laughs> Just trying to get through, right? So I go to the seminar, I present the paper, and the presentation was on the two witnesses from Revelation 11. And, and uh, Larry didn't say a word. Uh, I, I joke now that had I held his nose, he might have suffocated. Like the guy didn't open his mouth. I thought, well, that was useless. And about a week later, I get this new form of communique at the time. It was called electronic mail. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> You know, remember the old modems? And here comes Larry's email. And it's, you know, it's, it's loading in. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah, this is it. And uh, Larry, it's just like one sentence. He says, 
Robbie, he, he knew about the accident. He goes, Robbie, I think you found one of the two witnesses in Revelation. It's your dad. You just need to find the other. You're talking about seed in the stump. Uh, a baby will eat cottage cheese and honey. I mean, this was one of those crazy Old Testament prophet comments that are just utterly useless if you can't figure it out, right? Like, what kind of riddle is that? I'd have punched Larry if he had told me that in my, to my face. Useless. My father is one of the witnesses. Yeah, that would have got me kicked out of the university. Who's this, who's this cult leader? Um, so it was, it was a rough time after that. It wasn't like uh, the cloud just lifted. I would say it was a year, year and a half where things were just really rough. But to kind of fast forward through it, um, I was at a revival, one of those kind of you know, weekly or uh, nightly uh, services. Some of you remember those. Um, and the evangelist was up there, and he's kind of marching around saying, I'm looking for a Joshua. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced a, a Jericho march. It's a form of praise and worship where people march around inside the room, not in hopes that the building's going to collapse because that would kill us, but it's a, it's a spiritual metaphor. You march around inside the room, and then after seven times you shout, and the idea is that the kind of spiritual, emotional, psychological strongholds will fall. But I wasn't really up for that. I mean, I was believing in God. I'd come off my life support, uh, spiritually speaking, but I wasn't going to do a Jericho march. I mean, I like that evangelist and all, but I just wasn't interested. And uh, we had a large, we had a high platform, not unlike this in a way. We had steps kind of leading up to it. And the whole crowd, about 400 people in the room, had kind of crowded up into the altar space. And the evangelist was like, I'm looking for a Joshua. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Um, and he says, Waddell. I'm like, huh, he knows my name. I didn't know that. And I look up, and, and I, I've, I've told this before, but to me, at least in my memory, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. You know, the crowd just kind of moved to the side, and there's these steps that lead up to the platform. And I, I go up, and, and he, he, uh, he, in the moment, I think he kind of discerned because I really do believe the guy was going to ask me to lead those marches, but um, he didn't. Uh, he kind of discerned something else was on. He laid his hands on and prayed for me, and like, fast forward a bit again. That night, um, I'm laying in bed, and as, as much as I ever feel like I've ever heard God speak to me, like personally, I heard God that night, and he said, you are my Joshua. And in the moment I knew it wasn't the protege of Moses who had led the conquest, but it was the priest from Zechariah, the one who was anointed to, to serve, but had no place to serve. And my father was Zerubbabel. He was the one who had the resources and who had funded my research that, that has provided me my very life, my professional life that I have. Those, those two characters we said earlier were called the sons of oil, um, the olive trees. In Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses are referred to as two olive trees, uh, priestly and kingly, who, who prophesy. That's, that's another sermon. But what I'm not saying is that I think my dad and I are the two witnesses from Revelation. 
Revelation 11. But what I am saying is that in a personal kind of existential sense, that, that the, the word of the Lord kind of came through Scripture in kind of an ahistorical or quasi-historical way to say to this young Joshua, this young one who wanted to be a, a priest and a scholar, that there was a Zerubbabel in his life who, by the power of the Spirit of God, could make space for him to serve. Um, not every passage of Scripture is going to do that for us, right? Not, not everything is going to speak to us in new ways. It's why we always kind of read and reread and preach and re-preach, right? But we have, to be, we have to be attentive to that, I think. We need to be, we need to be aware of such things. Um, in our lives, as moment unfolds to moment, we can't always anticipate kind of what's around the bend. But if we stay faithful to kind of who we are and what we're called to, and we have ears to see and <sighs> ears to hear and eyes to see, really struggle with that metaphor, don't I? Uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, I, th I think we'll find ourselves, we'll find ourselves in positions to, to live out faithfully. Um, and I think this week especially, uh, someone like uh, Desmond Doss, uh, the private who served as a medic, who was also a Seventh-day Adventist, kind of redeem the tradition here a little bit, um, unlike Vernon, um, uh, Desmond kind of, I think, heard the voice of God. It, it resonated with him. It was alternative. It was not normal, right, for people to take his point of view. Yet he kind of held to it. Uh, he stuck with it. And it produced something um, that's a story worth remembering and worth retelling. On Hacksaw Ridge, in the Pacific Arena, young private uh, Desmond Doss did something that no one else would do or maybe even could do. Uh, refusing to kind of take up a weapon and rather be a medic, which kind of almost landed him in, well, did land him in jail temporarily. He would save uh, 75 people that day, kind of going up on the ridge and finding a wounded soldier and kind of bringing them back down. One of the amazing parts of this story is that Private Doss um, didn't discriminate on what soldiers he saved. He saved both Allied soldiers, American soldiers, and Japanese soldiers. Um, not all the Japanese soldiers made it because once he saved them and brought them down, they weren't always treated by the other medics. We don't all believe alike. We have our, our different beliefs, even about how we understand Jesus or communion or baptism. But what we believe overlaps enough that I think 
it's with somewhere in there the truth that that God loves us, that God created us, that God's redeeming us, that God's calling us to be faithful witnesses in a world that is dark, in a world that that needs the light, that needs the, the warmth of love. The captain, major, I don't, know his, I don't know his rank there, who said that what you did up on there on that ridge is nothing short of a miracle. I would agree. And I would say this, that there is this um, ultimate miracle in salvation history, in the history of the universe, we would say, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he grew in wisdom and stature and he was full of grace and truth. And uh, they said, hey, we've never heard somebody teach like this before. You, you have this amazing authority, more than the scribes and the Pharisees. But that he came in such a way that people couldn't always quite figure out who he was. I mean, he ate a lot, he drank a lot, always celebrating, forgiving somebody's sins and then inviting them to lunch. Hey, Zacchaeus, have you had anything to eat today? Hey, prostitute, you have dinner plans? What kind of rabbi is this? He ate, ate so much and drank so much that they said, an accusation they had of Jesus, was that he was a drunkard and a glutton. That doesn't mean that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. I mean, Scripture says that they said he was a drunkard and a glutton. But it means that he ate enough and drank enough that he got that reputation. And what was he eating and drinking about so much? He was celebrating the good news, his good news, that the kingdom of God had come and that there was a, a different way to be in this world, a way of the table, a way of fellowship. And all sorts of people came to that table. In his closest circle, a tax collector and a zealot. And what are the chances of getting those two guys to get along at the table? Kill each other. At least one would kill the other. The other would tax the other. But it's at the table that we too are invited. And we're invited to, to imagine the world, our world, being otherwise. And we're invited to participate in that world. A world and a life of freedom. Un, unbound to the sin that we had bound to before free to love, free to forgive, free to include, free to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus, 
the Christ.